This episode is brought to you by Osprey. Tired of your tattered old climbing pack? It's time you met the zealot from Osprey. Osprey was born at the foot of the Sierras and came of age in the ranges, deserts, and canyons around Cortez, Colorado. And ever since, they've been elevating adventure through innovative pack design along the way. When it comes to climbing, their Zealot series is purpose-built and athlete-tested with ballistic nylon to defy years of dirt bagging. Their Zealot 40 is a proper crag bag, made with the same attention to detail and carrying comfort that Osprey is known for. And their Zealot 30 is made for your days that take you from work to the gym, using dual compartments to keep your everyday carrying and climbing gear separate. The Zealot is available online at osprey.com or at your local retailer. Hey everyone, Tommy Caldwell here. You know, everyone, at least in the climbing world these days, is trying to figure out ways to live more intentionally, to live a less impactful life. And one of the best things we as climbers can do to make that happen is to support and buy things from the companies that are doing the same thing, the companies that are figuring out ways to lower their carbon footprint, lower their chemical usage, make their products out of recycled materials, make products that just don't wear out. And, you know, the only company that's doing that well in the ropes and hardware space is Edelrid. They've been innovating the best products for over 100 years. They invented the sit harness. These days they make unquestionably the most high quality ropes, the lightest weight carabiners. And really, they're just awesome all around. So check them out at www.climbgreen.com. Welcome to the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast from the Climbing Zine. I am Luke Mihal, and this is episode five of season five, a conversation with Nate Lyles, uh, the American Safe Climbing Association, otherwise known as ASCA. And yes, I'm still on the allergy tour. I'm all stuffed up. I wasn't as stuffed up this morning when I recorded this interview with Nate, but it's a little later in the day. We just did the art crawl at the Climbers Festival, and my producer, Chad Rich, wants to bust this one out into the airwaves. So I'm recording the intro and outro here at the Airbnb and Lander, and then getting ready to head out of the town for a little bit. My main message is keep the zine alive, support the zine, but also support Aska. You know, a lot of times when I'm out rebolting, people are like, oh, I love what you're doing. How can I support you? And every single time, I say support ASCA and or your local Climbers Coalition. You know, there's a lot of them out there doing a lot of good things. We highlight a few in this episode. Um, So please support the zine, support ASCA. And um, we really tried to be intentional about this episode to create something for people that don't know a ton about placing bolts and also the aficionados that know a lot of things that were just curious about other things. This episode of the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast is sponsored by Kilter. Looking for a fun way to train at home or at the gym? Check out the Kilter board. The Kilter board has innovative light-up holds, a progressive app with animated functions, climbs for all abilities, and two layouts to choose from with large international online communities for each. There are over 66,000 problems in the original Kilter board layout, and the newer home board layout comes with over 6,300 problems. You can set, tick climbs, make shareable playlists, watch send videos for motivation and beta, and even add your own videos to share with other users. The new map feature helps you find and connect to kilter boards nearest you. Kilter has multiple wall sizes and package options available, so we can help you get a kilter board in almost any space. 
Check out Kilter at settercloset.com and look for more information in our show notes. This episode is also sponsored by Scarpa. Scarpa's approach to climbing shoe design mirrors their approach to the pursuit of climbing itself. They strive to evolve and incorporate new ideas and techniques every step of the way. They refine their strengths, train their weaknesses, and build on each success. Scarpa has been bolstering its climbing shoe foundations by continuing to create versatile, high-quality designs that satisfy the needs of climbers across a range of disciplines and skill levels. For more information, visit scarpa.com and look for a link in our show notes. All right, I'm sitting here with Nate Lyles in beautiful city park here in Lander. Hopefully the mower won't come through here. <laughs> it is a really beautiful park. Um, I, I love this place. And you live here. I'm here for the Climbers Festival. And, and we've been chatting a bunch on a variety of, of things. Appreciate you sitting down and, and doing, a, doing a podcast with us. Yeah, dude. Thanks for having me. It's like to chat with you. Yeah. And, and so what is your role with the American Safe Climbing Association? Uh, I'm the development director. So we actually only have two employees. I'm half-time and the executive director is full-time. So uh, we kind of do a lot of different stuff between the two of us. But I focus on development and fundraising and just raising awareness. Yeah, and I feel like you've provided a a much-needed aspect to ASCA. I've been working with ASCA for, I think, maybe 13, 14 years, something like that. And it's always been, you know, Greg Barnes was like... You know, you hear about that ASCA will give people bolts or you see them around, you know, and you're a dirtbag climber. You don't want to pay for your own bolts. So you email Greg and Greg asks you all these questions to make sure you're legit, you know, and then he just sends you boxes of stuff. Like I've literally, you know, been working with him for 13 years and it's kind of a beautiful thing that he, the process is so simple like that. Um, but I've, I've always been grateful for ASCA and like, I feel like we all try to give, try to find ways to give back in our climbing community once we've reached a certain point of, um, you know, we, I feel like climbing gives us a lot and then we want to give back. And for me, you know, it's like the ASCA, like just being a volunteer with ASCA is, is my way to give back. Cause it's, you know, like we were talking about the other day, it's hard to be consistent with, you know, joining nonprofits or whatever and being on a board, but, um, ASCA has just made it really easy to, to give back. And I kind of want to start the conversation down in Mexico because, I've been climbing down in Potrero for um, almost 20 years, and the place, you know, needs so much care. I think Mark in the Mark Grunin episode, we're like, Potrero needs a lot of love. And ASCO is probably the most prominent American group to really contribute to Potrero by providing bolts. And so I just kind of wanted to start off by just, you know, thanking you all for providing that and, and kind of branching out beyond Stereotypically, you know, it's the American Safe Climbing Association. I'm sure a lot of American groups don't operate down there because their scope is within, you know, advocating for the United States. But it's just amazing that ASCA has been able to do that. Could you talk about that a little bit? Just like what the need down there and the decision that ASCA w- would support the climbers of, of Potrero and in, in the greater Monterey area. Yeah, for sure. You know, I, I think EPC is one of those places that is actually... Oh, you call it EPC? Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. either, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it's it's a gender, it's like EPC or Potrero, you know? Yeah. I, I just first I just first heard EPC recently in like the last couple of years. So, yeah. yeah. Anyways, go ahead. It's, it's very similar actually to a lot of climbing areas, especially in the West, in the States, where it gets a lot of visitation and 
from American climbers, mm-hmm. but the the size of the local community and the local climbing community and, and the resources they have are really limited. Mm-hmm. So in those situations, I, I feel like as American climbers, we sort of have this obligation or this responsibility to be good stewards and not just come and use the resource and you know high traffic and high visitation has a big impact on areas whether we like to admit it or not and that includes the fixed hardware resource Uh, so our our focus it's it's pretty clear to be able to support an area like that that has also just a bunch of american developers like if you look at the development that's happened ton of it has been from Americans. Probably the majority of it has been from Americans. Uh, so it's it's logical for us to support replacement work there. You know, we don't subsidize new routing, but supporting maintenance work is is totally logical. In the, an episode, the last episode that aired, um, we we're talking about. You know, there are groups that are doing some work down there, like Escalada Libre, based out of Monterey, and they've they've started their own bolt replacement. It was cool to see them there at the facelift this last year in Potrero. And and we've actually been directly supporting those guys. You know, some rebolters have worked with them in the past and given them some training. So we have been actually directly supporting them and and areas outside of Potrero that that see some visitation for American climbers. So those guys are doing great work down there. Shout out to them for sure. Shout out. And the one thing I love about Potrero, and um, my buddy Sean and I were talking about this yesterday, is like the world is becoming more of a global community. And in Potrero, you see this like, you know, Mexico has, you can't just ship stuff in Mexico or two places. It's like, you don't see the UPS truck going down the street ever, you know? And that, the fact that American climbers will then figure out ways, because you can get taxed by the government. I know that some folks brought some Asca bolts down and kept them in the box, and then they're going to tax you. Where when I brought mine, I like put mine in the suitcase, and they do their little half-ass search, you know. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't even know if tax is the right word. Uh, you might get kind of shaken down a little. And yeah, just to... <laughs> the Mexico hierarchy <laughs> status. But it is cool to see that effort, and I was just blown away and by how much has been done. You know, I didn't spend. Uh, a ton of time there and maybe the last 10 years or so. So seeing t- a 10 year difference of like how, how much things progressed. And like I went down there in December for a couple of weeks and I just noticed so many more Asca bolts and then it almost got me inspired to do more myself too. And you were, you were talking about that. It's just like, you see all these good, cause like even only a bolter will see a good anchor and realize like someone did this work, you know? Um, and there's a lot of work to, to do still um, in Potrero, for sure. Yeah. yeah, totally. I think yeah. it's a momentum thing. And hopefully the, the people that are psyched to do this work are, are keeping pace with increased visitation because it's certainly getting busier. Absolutely. Yeah. And I just think some of these anchors, they need like those Yosemite three, four bolt anchors, you know, that, you know, you, you have one party coming down, one party coming up because some of these anchors are two bolts. And we don't need to we don't need to nerd out on bolts too much because we do. We did set the intention at the beginning of this episode to really convey this episode to experienced climbers, but also people that want to learn some more about bolting. But I think now is a good time to you were telling me about the history of Aska. And even though I volunteered for so long, I really didn't know a lot of the history. So, you know, the folk, the folklore is that Chris McNamara started the group. Um, I guess I'll, I'll just let you kind of take the story from here because Chris McNamara started ASCA in, uh, it's not, I'm guessing, some point in the 90s in Yosemite. Is that correct? In the mid or late 90s, Chris started doing hardware replacement work in Yosemite. And um, really, I, I think thinking about the history, first of all, I, I probably don't have the best details in this because when it started, I was about 11 or 12 years old. Um, but... Yeah, I think the two big names here are Chris McNamara 
and Greg Barnes. Um, and Chris really had this initial vision and I think born out of necessity in a way. He was really psyched on walls and spending time on the side of El Cap, right? I remember when I first started climbing, he was the guy on the cover of the magazines and they they concluded, like Climbing Magazine concluded that he had spent a certain percentage of his life on El Cap because he started climbing it when he was in his teenage years, right? Yeah. Totally. So and he was a wall rat. Visionary in a, in a lot of ways, right? In, in both really starting wall climbing early and doing some, some hard stuff. And then he got into base jumping and, and actually got out of base jumping, you know, which is, uh, that's a different story entirely, I think, for people that are able to be hardcore into that community and actually move out of it successfully. It's just a very dangerous endeavor to spend a lot of your time. But anyways, he, he started replacing bolts. A lot of these wall anchors had a ton of bolts, but they're all quarter-inch button heads and um, really pretty ugly, and everyone would keep adding another one. You Describe that. So someone comes up to an anchor, and they see several quarter-inch bolts. What do they do? Yeah, for sure. I, th I think for a lot of people, well, first of all, we're talking about wall anchors here, right? So you've got a lot of gear, and you're rigging a bunch of different things on the wall, and it's, it's I think a lot of people are used to a kind of a standard single pitch anchor that's just two bolts and that's just not the case for a wall anchor right like it, it, out of necessity you kind of need a lot more bolts mm -hmm. um, and there was just a massive quarter inchers and people would come up and they would see all these button heads and they all look kind of bad and so they would put in another one at least it was fresh right and, and, and that just adds to, to it. someone who hasn't seen a quarter inch bolt they're literally like nails almost like <laughs> Yeah, I think it'd be good to get, yeah, for context is yeah. unless you spend a lot of time on walls and whatnot nowadays, obscure areas, you actually don't see a lot of quarter inch or button heads, but uh, it's a compression bolt. You know, what you're doing is you're drilling this quarter inch hole, like think of sort of like roofing nail size, yeah. you know, less than an inch long and uh, hand drilling it. You know, it's it's pretty quick to drill that way. And all you're doing is just pounding it in the hole and it's expanding um, or creating friction against the wall and kind of smooshing in there. And that's all it's doing. I mean, when we remove them and replace them, you, you just take a fork, what we call a tuning fork, like kind of a, a drilled out piton, and you, uh, you drive it in behind with a hammer and you just pop them out and they pop right out. So certainly not a, a sustainable long-term solution. And realistically, uh, you know, it's fine if you're hanging off it, but if, if you're trying to free climb, you really don't want one of those things behind you. Um, anyways, so Chris starts saying, well, why don't we, why don't we put proper 3.8 stainless steel bolts in here and remove some of these old button heads, clean up some of these, these wall anchors. And that just grew. Uh, it was, it was kind of obvious that you could try and scale that. So with some help from his dad, Steve, and, uh, Armando Menacal, actually, who's, who's also the, the founder of the Access Fund, just it kind of helped him file some paperwork to be a 501c3. And uh, he decided the logical path to scale it up would be to, to have a rebolting clinic and get people into it. And somewhat disappointingly for Chris, uh, he, he thought maybe five or ten people would show up. And uh, this is not surprising in the climber world, I guess. Everyone's focused on their climbing. But one person showed up, and that one person was Greg Barnes. Uh, who is is currently still the executive director of the SCA? Yeah, that's amazing and um, good for Chris too to think of it. And I don't know how much you know. Um, Armando is that his name? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm familiar with um, him only because of that uh, climbing gold episode. Actually, a few years. he was such a, a big contributor to the climbing world that is is somewhat unsung, but um, very very unsung. Yeah, yeah. He, his contributions to the his forward thinking to 
conservation of the climbing environment and and um, and creating a resource so climbers have a voice is is really unsung. Most people don't even know his name. Yeah, and so Chris also had then the and the or the team the ASCA team at that point had the vision to sustain the group. Um, which is very difficult with nonprofits, especially, you know, climbers, we get a great idea and we work on it for a year or two, or especially if it's something's non-paid, you know, I, I think there's the three-year nonprofit burnout that everyone, that everyone talks about, but he had the, the good fortune of her, hooking up with Greg Barnes and then Greg Barnes is just this, um, can you talk about where it goes from once it gets into Greg's hands? Um, cause we're talking about a long time period before they even hired you. Uh, we're, you know, talking what I'm guessing 20, 20 plus years, huh? Yeah. Over yeah. 20 years. Um, so I, I mean, I think a lot of this just moved forward through necessity. It was something that was really needed. Um, but Greg is certainly a defining force here. You know, Chris has been involved in the organization and he's still on our board and is, you know, supports the organization in a bunch of different ways. Um, really incredible to, to see how much it's scaled up since he started. And I don't think he could have uh, forecasted, you know, where we're at now with over 60,000 bolts replaced with SCA hardware. It's, it's kind of staggering, actually. You know, something else I want to highlight that you had some really interesting information on is when sport climbing started, it wasn't this thing that they could have ever expected it to be today. Um, so, I mean, could you talk about, and it's a generalization to talk about every, everybody's, every sport climber's mindset in the early days of the late eighties, early nineties. Um, but could you talk about the early sport climbing mindset from, you know, some of the bolters you've talked to or just experiences you've, you've had and seen? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think you talk to a lot of those early developers and one common thread you'll find is that they'll tend to say that they really never expected that it was going to get this much traffic or that it would even get repeated by anyone aside from maybe their friends and their, their local community. Cause it was just such a fringe thing. So I don't think anyone could have really forecast the scale. And a lot of time people are very quick to say, Oh, I would use such terrible hardware and, um, you know, sort of criticize the initial development style. Uh, but it is very important to remember that first of all, they may not have had a ton of resources. Secondly, there was no real best practice or standard for this stuff. There's uh, no YouTube video from Fixie or ClimbSack or whatever. You know, like, no, yeah, not at all. Asking, yeah, 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 absolutely. And um, they really also just didn't think they were, they were kind of doing it for this very small community and, and for themselves. And I think there's very few people that had this true vision of, of scale. So it's important to to recognize that when we're looking at, well, why did this stuff get used? Um, and a lot of time, I mean, when people, when you're talking about people doing walls, uh, it's a lot of hardware and really the vision is, is trying to get up this thing, not thinking about people coming behind. So, right. um, I should, uh, I should give, before we move away from the history, yeah. I should give, um, Greg an, an extra shout out here because, you know, his first few years of, of running the SCA, he didn't even take any salary at all. I mean, we've always been a very grassroots organization, but he was purely volunteering his time, not just supplying hardware and networking with people, training people, but also replacing bolts. Yeah. You know, he's done a massive amount of bolt replacement, focusing a lot of it on, on um, free routes, mm -hmm. you know, that had quarter inch button heads and stuff like that, that really, really needed um, to be addressed because they were legitimately dangerous. You know, free climbing above quarter inch button heads is, is not a safe endeavor mm -hmm. by any means. Um, and a, a lot of it he did in areas that required hand drilling. So, you know, he probably has personally replaced somewhere around 2000 bolts. 
um, and most of those by hand. And I will also note that all the volunteer, all the work we do actually replacing bolts is volunteer work. Um, that's outside of our normal ASCA work. Um, you know, we're not insured to have you know, work at height uh, coverage or anything like that. So when we actually go out and do rebolting work, that is volunteer work for us also. So the amount of time Greg has put in and effort is is truly staggering. And he, he is uh, he won't tell you that himself, um, but I will um, give him a shout out here because it is really pretty staggering. And the climbing community as a whole owes Greg a debt of gratitude for sure. Yeah, big big thanks to Greg. And you know, really the um, the context of the conversation is that. Um, you know, bolts, bolts are necessary for climbing. <laughs> There's no really getting around. If you're, if you're climbing on a rope at some point, um, you know, you're going to end up clipping a bolt sooner or later. And the hardware that these roots were originally equipped, like you said, there was no standard operating practices like there basically are now. Um, and so th- it was just like kind of a ticking time bomb that needed to be addressed. And it seemed like ASCA, even though the, the issue of dangerous bolts is always something that's, that's going to come up it seems like you really helped address this, this need that was there in the, in the climbing world. Yeah, totally. And it really did come out of necessity. We've always been very grassroots. And the reason we've been able to accomplish all this work is because of volunteers across the country. The volunteer effort that's gone into this is, is really unbelievable. And, you know, every week we have new folks contacting us that are stewards at their local area that are interested in getting into this work or have been doing this work and have been paying for it out of pocket or trying to raise funds locally. So really our our methodology is we're removing this cost burden of placing the best possible hardware when we do replacement work that's going to last the longest. And what that does is it, it really creates less impact too. When you have a scenario where someone throws in another wedge bolt because the bolt next to it is bad and then that one you know turns into a spinner won't tighten down you know 10 or 15 years down the road and you throw in another one we're kind of running out of real estate and it's i'm speaking in this context mostly to the sport climbing that we we tend to support a lot of these days because there is so much more traffic in this space Um, and it's important to realize that even really high quality hardware if it gets enough traffic, it does have a finite lifespan. So we really want to be using the stuff that is going to last the longest so that when we're thinking down the road um, that this resource is, is going to be around for future climbers and it's not going to be totally trashed with a bunch of bolts everywhere and just a, a mess, you know. Personally, how did you get into all of this stuff? Like uh, where did you start climbing at? How did your, your love for climbing transfer into you know, wanting to get back to uh, replace bolts and and everything like that. So I started climbing in Colorado in probably 2002. And I actually started climbing outside at some of the early sport climbing venues, uh, Shelf Road, Penitente Canyon. And these areas, you know, even just 20 years ago, already had aging hardware. It was placed in the 1980s, kind of a, a variety, a mix of hardware. Yeah, and, and that's something we should probably note that stainless steel hardware, which is generally what you, you need to use, wasn't, it wasn't a standard then. And also it was, you know, not readily available to have the combination of stainless steel bolts and um, hangers from climbing companies, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah rust was an issue and corrosion was an issue. And it, it maybe a bigger issue was appropriate hardware for the rock type. So when we, we yeah. talk about a place like Shelf Road or a place like Penitente Canyon, you know, 
it's limestone and volcanic tuff and wedge bolts just have a, a pretty short lifespan in in that rock a wedge bolt is is really commonly used for development what you'll typically see is a, a three-eighths so it's a stud and and as a climber what you'll see is you'll see a threaded stud sticking out of the wall with a nut on it and hopefully a washer under it that holds the hanger on and if you loosen the nut you can pull the hanger right off and you'll be left with just a threaded stud sticking out of the wall. Mm-hmm. So that's what most people see is, is that side of it. And what's going on inside is uh, you have a little clip at the bottom. When the bolt is tightened, it, it slides that over a, a cone at the bottom of the bolt and that creates this wedging action. And it's a very small clip that actually holds it in. So if we're in really hard rock, that's fine. The rock isn't going to deteriorate. Mm-hmm. But when we're in soft rock, what happens is it creates this cavity back there and eventually you won't even be able to tighten the bolt back down again when it gets loose Mm -hmm. and you'll get this kind of permanent spinner Mm -hmm. and when you're in in vertical terrain it can be all right you know it it's not going to be immediately dangerous or fail right away but enough hangs enough falls on it that bolt will certainly deteriorate and become dangerous Mm -hmm. yeah so you're climbing at penitence shelfie yeah, and in, in my first years of climbing, you know, close to my first decade of climbing, like so many people, was was very much focused on my own climbing journey. Um, but I did reach a point where I, I kind of had some thoughts about, like, well, who takes care of this? Who's the person that's going to fix this thing when I come across this bolt that scares me? You know, early on, I was I was quite a a scared climber, maybe intimidated of falling, intimidated of heights. Uh, it really took me a lot of time to to process past that. And that meant I thought a lot about the fixed hardware. <laughs> yeah. You know, is this thing going to fail on me? You're Can like I sitting in this thing? bed at night, like, <laughs> what's this bolt made of? Yeah, yeah totally. Um, Interesting. And, and so eventually, you know, maybe a decade or so into my climbing, somewhere around 2010 or 2012, maybe, there was a stewardship day at Penitente. And a big focus was replacing hardware there because there was a lot of old homemade hangers. This is something you see a lot with 1980s, 1990s sport climbing areas. There was very few companies making a good hanger and they're pretty expensive, the ones that were made. So a lot of people would take um, bed frame angle iron and they would actually just think of a, a right angle slice of iron and they would actually just chop it up into slices and then they drilled two holes in it. One hole was for the bolt and the other one was for you to clip your carabiner quick draw through. And there's a lot of variety in those. Some of them were pretty darn solid. Other ones were pretty bad. And then the other thing we saw a lot of was welded cold shuts. And the welded cold shut is, is a pretty obvious solution, right? You get a cold shut from the hardware store, you hammer it shut, you put a weld on it and you've got this kind of nice ring style hanger. Problem is, you know, many of those welds were done in someone's garage by people who were not very qualified welders. Mm-hmm. So what we saw is we saw uh, those cold shuts starting to fail wow. and, and unwind. Mm-hmm. And under a leader fall, you can produce enough force to unwind one of those mm-hmm. completely. All right, so yeah, we're you're down in Penitente and you signed up. Um, and, and who organized the clinic? Was it an ASCA clinic, or had the Climbers Coalition down there been started yet? No, not at all. It was yeah. really primarily organized by Bob D'Antonio, okay. who was yeah. one of the original developers, and right. yeah. uh, he actually created a ton of the sport climbing resource in Colorado, particularly. Yeah. Did a, a, a ton of work down there. It really had the vision of of sport climbing being the future pretty early on, you know, just behind the, the Smith Rock guys. So 
he want he really loves that canyon and he wanted to to see some work get accomplished um and i was kind of at that point in my climbing where my vision was starting to expand a bit you know i'd gotten into traditional climbing i'd kind of gotten past my my initial fears and my trepidation around just being exposed you learned that a good bolt was really strong <laughs> yeah for yeah. sure and i had also yeah. along with that i had learned that bad bolts are are really pretty dangerous yeah. and, and a lot of them are kind of ticking time bombs so came down for the the work weekend essentially it was just a kind of a grassroots effort by locals people that love the area you know some local climbers showed up but a lot of folks from out of town you know that a lot of people love that little area mm-hmm. it's kind of a formative place for a lot of people's sport climbing mm-hmm. and i you know first time i walked into the canyon I, I bumped into bob and i started talking to him started talking to him about hardware and some of his new routing there back in the day and he was the first person that kind of opened my eyes to this this idea that there isn't someone who's kind of designated and responsible to take care of things. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of the time, first ascensionists will come back and do work on their routes, but a lot of them are have moved on mm-hmm. and passed away. I mean, there's just not someone who is, who's going to come back and make sure, uh, nor should there really be, you know, and no one would be putting up roots if you had ultimate responsibility mm-hmm. for that route down the road. So, you know, and what we hear all the time at the cliff is someone will say, well, that bolt's a spinner. Someone should take care of that. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. And Bob was the first one who was kind of like, well, you're that someone. Yeah. You know, you should take care of it. Uh-huh. And it grew from there. I learned a good bit about replacing hardware at that first work day. Mm-hmm. And then a couple of years later, we had another one. And by that point, I was fully equipped to do the work myself. And I was able to make contact with Greg at the SCA, he had supplied a bunch of hardware for the previous one, but mm-hmm. I was just out there as an independent volunteer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the in the decade following that, I have you know really taken that up as you know I lived on the road for a long time in the West, and I spent a lot of time at various areas that saw quite the menagerie of hardware, mm-hmm. uh, old sport climbing areas, you know areas with a lot of mixed routes, places like City of Rocks, mm-hmm. you know Shelf Road, Penitente. Um, some of these areas that's a pretty early development and really needed the work. They needed someone to pick it up. Ian, you know, Penitente, um, we were talking off the mic. That's where, um, my, uh, my love for sport climbing really started in that place. And very similar to Potrero. I didn't go there for a long time. And in the last few years I've been back, I'm like, wow, this place is set up and like good to go. Like the, there's a lot of, tell there's been a lot of bolt replacement and then there's you know there's the moosey hooks with lower offs that we can talk about later another place that i noticed like wow this has been taken care of and um but that's interesting that bob d'antonio really led that force because i don't think you know, i knew i knew he was a big root developer but i don't know if i knew that he had spent so much time on the back end as well i mean that's very it's got to be very full circle for him and then it with learning that was it one-on-one from bob well, we had a we had a collection of people there that were qualified, and, and a lot of it was kind of shadowing and, and watching other folks, um, and a little bit of one-on-one. I, I have to give a shout-out for the Penitente region. You know, Bob was doing some of that initial stuff, but what he really wanted to see is the local community take up the stewardship work. Mm-hmm. And the San Luis Valley Climbers Alliance, those guys formed um, after that, a few years down the road, uh, definitely they got a little push from Bob saying like, Hey, you guys should own this, but really they were just 
super motivated, wanted to take care of their resource, wanted to create more community, wanted to create a welcoming environment for all different climbers. And, and I, you know, I did a bolt replacement clinic for those guys, showed them how to replace or replace bolts with adhesive anchors, which is uh, what you really want to be using in that softer rock and that volcanic tough. So you're talking like glue in bolts? Correct. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And, and, you know, they, I've done a lot of bolt replacement there, but man, once I showed those guys the deal, they just absolutely ran with it. And if you go to Penitente these days, you know, all the classics are equipped with glue ins. Everything's got a clip and lower anchor good trail work you know they're really doing excellent work going hole for hole with almost all the bolts you know doing good extraction and really clean replacement work so a huge shout out to those guys for that that work in yeah, the region we've actually been trying to get angela and wes on the show for a while um so we'll, we'll have to dive into the sl or they're they're two of the, the main members with the san luis valley um climbing association yeah, uh, yeah. co-founders there oh, for okay, sure yeah, and yeah. and they have they have a great community there now too there's a bunch uh-huh. of people doing work but you know like so many especially rural areas that have climbing resource they've really stepped up you know to to steward this area that gets visitation from a lot of different people traveling climbers people that routinely come from the front range and they've really owned it and they've really stewarded that resource super well so deeply appreciative to guys like that and local climbing organizations across the country that are doing that this work is just not possible without those folks yeah yeah and it's really interesting to see the breakdown of you know as time goes by it's not just ASCA that you know, you, you guys supply the hardware for people, but you really need the climbers coalitions. You need the motivated individuals, and then you meet, need to kind of make it sustainable so it continues over the years. And it seems like a community with uh, a strong local climbers, uh, what we call LCOs in, in the business, it seems like an, an, having an LCO, a local climbing organization, is key to getting the work done over the years, especially. And then Ask Us supplies the hardware. Yes, absolutely. And I think one critical point here to recognize is that American climbing has this fantastic diversity in style. And and a lot of it we center around, we use the term ethics, but stylistically from area to area, you know, what works well in one area is not what works well in another area, whether it be rock type or how roots were put up. And what it really takes is a good consolidation of local community and first ascensionists to know what's appropriate when you do stewardship work in that area. And and the same goes for development. You know, if you go to an area that has been very traditionally developed in a ground up style and it, and it has this very firm ethic around that to go in and, and decide you're going to wrap bolt a bunch of sport roots is probably not an ideal way to develop the resource, right? You have to understand the history. You have to understand the context. There's really room for both of these things in our climbing, both this modern sports style approach and also this, you know, very traditional ground up, you know, that, that should be preserved in our climbing too. And there's people who seek that out, even if the majority of folks want to go out and and clip bolts and, and have a pretty safe experience. Uh, we have so much richness in our variety and our history of climbing, and what it takes is local communities to make sure we're stewarding that in a way that is sustainable, that we're doing uh, really good credence to the folks that had the original vision, and you know, modernizing hardware where appropriate, but also being able to think about this stuff with nuance and, and have good nuance discussion. Nuance is, is the word that um, is lacking maybe most in our our culture in general right now, but yes. um, <laughs> that when you talk about bolts and, um, you know, 
there there's various like things that are going on at the higher levels of government to try to legitimize volts um, because volts are even even amongst our user group you know because there was that I don't know if you read that editorial recently that went kind of viral or not necessarily went viral but was syndicated but it was written by a uh, environmental nonprofit that didn't want to see bolts in wilderness and they used a lot of like kind of I, I wrote an editorial that you can read online in reply to that but I, I just and I don't want to necessarily dive into that but I want to talk about I mean bolts are nuanced even within climbers and two climbers won't see the same situation the same way. So, I mean, have you? Can you talk about some experiences where, like, you were telling me at one point, you replaced the bolts on a route, and the first ascensionist had contacted you, and the person, uh, could, you, could you talk about that, like, kind of situation and, and these like learning lessons that occur over the way, just based on the nuance of bolts and um, how you know some communication can go a long way too. Sure. Yeah. I, um, so I've, I've done a lot of replacement work generally around the West as I travel. It's something that I've felt has been my way to give back to areas that I visit instead of just coming and, and taking from the climbing resource. You know, I try and do some stewardship while I'm there and, uh, areas with older hardware, the logical thing to do is, is some replacement work and, um, you know, try and up, update some of these routes. So I had an experience where I was, replacing hardware um, kind of an obscure sport climbing area but fairly you know early 90s developed aging hardware for sure lots of welded cold shut stuff like that and it just was due for an update on a bunch of routes so i updated one of the the classic 510s there um, extracted all the old hardware used the same holes with uh, glue-ins adhesive anchors so really long-term solution um, it, the bolts were really where they needed to be. It was bolted with with good clipping stances in mind originally. So I didn't really think twice about it. Generally with replacement work, you know, if, if you're going to make a major change to a route, it's, it's one thing, and that warrants a large consensus and discussion with the first ascensionist. Um, but typically replacing hardware, that's not something we stress about a lot because really what we're trying to do is is just get rid of this stuff that's become dangerous over time and, and everyone has been enjoying the route and its state and we just want to make sure the hardware isn't going to fail. Uh, so I didn't really think twice about it and, you know, finished my work on the route and I, I got an email from the developer, you know, because I had, had just made a note on Mountain Project that I had done some work and they were kind of upset, you know, that I that I hadn't reached out to them first and that got me thinking a little more about it and ultimately we had a good discussion and they ended up being pretty happy that the work had been done and, and thanked me for it. But I, I think it's important to remember that there's often this sense of ownership mm-hmm. for folks that do development work and first ascensionists want to be included in the discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, I think and they put the initial effort into the climb too, whether, you know, you like it or not, they, they put a lot of work into it. And there's, you know, there's nuance in this discussion too, because there isn't truly ownership there. You know, when we, develop a route on public land um it is a community resource and it exists a bit in this gray area you know and and your your comment about um bolts and the validity of placement and all the politics around that right now um, definitely relates right back to that but we've existed in this this gray area for a very long time where it's not an overtly sanctioned activity on public land, but it, it's being tolerated, right? Um, and that's why it's come down to climbers to do this type of maintenance work because there's no land manager, very few land managers out there who want to touch it. But they also don't want things failing and people getting hurt. You know, that's a huge jeopardy to access. Uh, so there is nuance in this discussion, you know, 
a first ascensionist has a lot of say, certainly in routes they've done, um, and especially if those routes were done in a traditional style. And when I say a traditional style, I mean from the ground up. You know, a lot of people nowadays think of, you know, traditional equals gear, but really a traditional route is anything that's done in that. I start at the ground and go to the top style, and that might be a route that actually is only protected by bolts, where they climbed up and they drilled it from a stance. So a lot of the time now people say, oh, it's a trad climb, but what they actually mean is it's the gear climb. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so there is nuance in that, but, you know, to go up to a route that has been established in that style and, and try and change that and maybe add extra protection or something like that, we should be really careful and really critical about that because that's a climbing resource that I think is important. And on the other side of that, when we look at something that's been developed in a rappel bolted fashion as a sport climb, so someone came in from the top and they got to see all the holds, mark everything up, check out the clipping stances, and then lead it. If they created this really run out ground fall experience clipping, you know, it's a very valid discussion within the community to say, okay, is, is this really how we want this to be for something that was established in this rappel bolted style um, and is, is definitely intended to be a sport climb? Should it have a, a ground fall potential, a death fall potential on it? So there's a lot of nuance in this, and I think the place to start is really how it was established and getting good consensus in your community with this type of stuff through the experience I had, um, just thinking I'm doing a good thing and and having someone be pretty upset with me about it. And um, it was a good reminder to say, okay, make that extra effort maybe to reach out to folks, even if you're just replacing one for one. Because of course, if we're going to change something or you think something is is really inappropriate for the style of the area and, and should be modified, we all need to come to consensus and have a discussion there. But one for one replacement, I was, you know, that was a, a good lesson for me. Yeah, and I think that the fact that you talk to the person, I'm assuming you didn't get a big fight on the internet, you know, like that's one thing I've really realized has a lot of value is just talking to someone um, about something instead of letting it blow up on the internet. Because whenever something like this blows up on the internet, it's never good for climbers' images. It's not know? a good look. <laughs> like, and I, am, I immediately got on the yeah. phone with them, and, yeah. and we actually supply them with hardware now to do their own replacement work. So oh, right. great relationship yeah. was formed, but, you know, Fighting on a forum online is just not a good place to get consensus. Get together with your community, have a meaningful discussion, be respectful to each other. We we just need more of that in the world. We do, and um, it reminds me, because I want to kind of talk about both of our individual communities, because something when we were having our prep for this, I realized is when all your climbing is just bolted sport routes, there's a lot less potential for controversy. One role I've kind of played in our community in Durango, my buddy calls me like the peacemaker, you know, like if there's someone who's upset, I'll try to like talk with both parties because Durango is that it started off traditional, you know, like uh, we have this traditional crag called East Animus and then we have some sport crags, but like the heart of our climbing is traditional climbing, but the best bolt, the best climbing is bolted. (laughs) So there's been so many debates over the years and contentious things. Um, and only recently we've had a climbers, you know, we've only had a climbers coalition for a couple years, you know, but that, that's a role that, you know, just that one-on-one communication will diffuse so much. Such, such a common thread, I think through climbing areas in the U S is you have this divide that still exists between the initial style and then what is has become of this kind of modern development style Uh, many many areas that that have that scenario you know sometimes i've noticed in durango if 
if the uh, you know we just have one person, I'll give him a shout out. David Dave Kozak. He's I don't know him super well, but he's this real old school climber, and he he did both. Like he did everything really brave, and like his you know name is all on the roots and everything. But when people circle back to him, he's like, yeah, like fix it up, like add some bolts and. It's just that, you know, certain people in communities will, you know, there's there's often these prolific root developers and in, in certain places, only a few. And like someone like David Kozak, he's just, he's just always supportive of his roots being equipped modernly and he still lives there and still climbs on them. Um, so, some folks are just great about that. Yeah. And, and I think the, the difference is um, folks that really want to see people enjoy what they've created and they're less concerned with their ego around their initial experience Mm -hmm. and and that's not always the motivation for folks like i said stylistically how the route was done is is a very valid discussion and certain things should be preserved but you know who bob d'antonio who i mentioned earlier is very much the same way you know they a lot of that he's like man we didn't have many bolts i didn't have much money you know i was climbing 513 if i bolted a 511 it was just the bare minimum and a lot of those routes that were rappel bolted, you know, he's come back and said, yeah, let's let's realign this for a safe experience. People can enjoy this beautiful route. Um, and while that's not appropriate everywhere and that that shouldn't be the case with everything um, in certain contexts, that's really valuable. And having the first ascensionist um, be on board with that and and really want to see people enjoy the thing they've created is is really cool, I think. And that happens at areas across the country. Yeah, definitely. It's it's definitely a, a really it's really easy when when people are like that, you know. Um, I want to talk a bit about Lander because um, you know I come up here every year, and and this is like my like you know summer camp slash symposium or whatever you know um, the, for the climbers festival up here. But I, I always I'm always impressed with the climbing community here. But you made me realize maybe it is a little easier because you know you you do have you're primarily dealing with with bolted climbs that you're maintaining and you don't have any maybe there are some trad climbs in this area i know the wind river has plenty but do you do you think that made it easier for the the climbing community in lander to be so cohesive is because it, it is mostly sport or do you think it's just kind of a coincidence uh i think in this case we actually do have a a fairly large traditional resource of course most people come here as visitors to go sport climbing um I think in the case here, it, it actually is is purely due to the strength of the community and how consolidated it is. You know, some of the original figures in development uh, here in Lander are still here and still active, and they've had this through line of vision that's been really, really consistent. And who are some of these people? Um, so... I, I think the first person I'd mention is uh, Steve Bechtel. You know, Steve is Steve and his wife Ellen are really amazing people, and they're at the center of the climbing community here in a lot of ways. Um, you know, they have Elemental, the gym here in town. Um, Steve has authored several guidebooks. Um, he's a climbing training business, um, coaching business has done a ton of development, a ton of rebolting. Um, so he's he's definitely one of the early um, developers, you know, developing here in the 90s who's still here and still doing it at a very high level. There's a bunch of other folks, and uh, I'll probably miss people for sure. Um, but, you know, people like Paul Piana are still around too. You know, Paul doesn't live here, but he comes down for the festival every year. He's developed so many of these routes here. Um, I mean, it's just there's so many people in the community that I'm 
it's going to be very hard for me to get at, give everyone the credit they deserve. Sure, but you're saying you know some of these original developers are still yeah, here. That's, that's yeah. part of it. And yeah. then then there's this just wave of people that really took up the the mantle of it. And I think the the foremost person I should mention there is is Sam Leitner. Uh, you know, Sam sp- certainly spent time here early, you know, um, with Todd Skinner and crew. But he, when he moved here, he took up this hardware replacement mantle with just this incredible effort. Like the amount of, of roots that he rebolted over a few seasons and, and certainly with a bunch of the community supporting too was, was pretty stunning. Um, so we, we deserve a lot of credit there. But Ultimately, it, it kind of comes back to this uh, this consolidation of community, and they started this bolt anchor replacement fund really early, long before the SCA. The uh, barf. The barf, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, long Great before the SCA started supplying them any hardware up here. So it's been pretty amazing. And honestly, the community here, it's not just the folks doing the rebolting and the root development and the stuff directly at the crag, you know, we, we have such a through line of community. I mean, you look at folks like Amy Skinner, you don't see her out at the, the crag, you know, drilling and replacing bolts so much, but she's so involved with all these other facets of the community. And uh, our focus here is hardware replacement, but I think the number one credit why we don't deal with controversy here is the fact that we're all respectful of each other. We have a very consolidated community and we have these figures. We, we really look to for for guidance. I think in our community, and that that's really interesting. That wasn't necessarily the answer I expected, but it, it makes a lot of sense. And I mean, the, this is what the thirtieth year of the Climbers Festival. Yeah, which is 30th, incredible. Thirtieth anniversary here. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. funny because it really started as um, just like, hey, let's have a party to celebrate the climbing, and and they, you know, they had like one international right, yeah. guest <laughs> here from like Germany the uh, first year, yeah. and that was the that was hence the international name. Yeah. And boy, it's just totally grown. I think a lot of folks don't realize that the Climbers Fest actually supports our local climbing organization here, which is the Central Wyoming Climbers Alliance, aka Wild Climbers, mm-hmm. um, and it's actually our biggest fundraiser of the year. Mm-hmm. So it all goes right back into that. 501c3 and mm-hmm. we do a ton of different stuff you know it's not just bolt replacement although over 6,000 bolts have been replaced in the lander area a staggering number of bolts wow um it's trail work it's signage it's human waste disposal mm-hmm. it's adaptive management of raptor closure so that we don't have to close mile-long sections of cliff and the birds can still succeed in their fledging can you guys come down to Indian Creek and do that too? <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a complex <laughs> yeah, one, yeah. right? Um, and I should, you know, that program deserves a mention because the working with the various land managers, and we have several different land managers we work with. You know, we have state park entities, we have BLM, we have Forest Service here. Um, that's the one thing not to cut you off, but we we you know we started a climbers co- coalition recently. Like that's that's square one is like getting a good relationship with the land managers a hundred percent and yeah. we should you know this is something that should absolutely be be a primary focus for anyone interested in stewardship work you know we're not going to expect the land manager to go out and replace hardware necessarily but if we can have a good working relationship with them so that they're recognizing climbers as a, a legitimate use of the resource and then they have an understanding of what that means and what that takes to do that um, is huge. But, you know, I think an example of that adaptive management plan for Raptors is is a really a great one because 
you have a situation where you have a a mile long section of cliff band that's very popular sport climbing venue a couple hundred routes um well if you just have a standard raptor closure that they don't take closer look they just see a nest that's a mile long closure that's a half a mile on either side and you lose that that whole cliff for that that season meanwhile um we've learned that that's really not necessary at all it's just a blanket closure so what we do is is we go in and we work with the land manager and the biologists come out and we decide what routes need to be closed that will have any impact on the birds Mm -hmm. and we've been doing this for years we've had many successful um, nesting sites and they return to those nesting sites every year we're able to close these short sections of cliff and people are very respectful about it they're very the compliance is very high and we're able to still have this climbing resource during its best season and then the birds are still able to successfully fledge and and come back year after year which is a pretty amazing thing to see I mean that's certainly just as important as us being able to have our climbing access and the other thing that comes along with with good cooperation with land managers you know if we just close mile long section of cliff the chance of of people not complying with that closure is actually much higher you know because it's this massive section and then they say oh well I'm fine to go over here or I don't really care I need to go climbing and um, that makes the climbing community look really bad and it, it strains our our relationship with that land manager. So whenever we have these collaboration opportunities, you know, we're just far past this time where we could just fly under the radar with climbing. You know, we um, we have a bit of this like this sort of rebel history a little bit, and this um, you know, I'm gonna kind of do what I want. And I think that's really cool that that still exists to some degree in climbing. But we have to recognize that with the amount of climbers we have nowadays, we have an impact and, and that requires stewardship and collaboration with land managers so that we have a legitimate voice and we're not destroying the resource when we have really high volume of people. Yeah, totally. And I think, you know, when we're off off the air, you said that community is a big thing you were looking for of where you decided to live. And, and Lander, I think, has that really connected, you know, larger climbing community for for a, a town that just has you know a certain amount of climbers but um i think that community you, you guys have just a great community here and it's i think it's an inspiration i know it is for me when i go back home to durango i'm always taking a part of of what you all have have done here and um it's it's just always a treat to to come up here and and be a part of this community for a little while and every time i come up here i'm like i so I should stay longer next time, you know? <laughs> yeah, for yeah. sure. I, um, you know, I, I interact with local climbing organizations around the country and Lander is absolutely a model for, on a bunch of different levels. The hardware replacement is the one I look at all the time, you know, the, the mountain they've been able to get done and, um, how as a relatively small town, we're able to steward this very large resource that sees a lot of visitation, but it's on a bunch of different levels and there's a lot to learn there for different LCOs across the country. And a lot of LCOs are just forming and just figuring out how to steward their resource. And it's great to have such a, a, a fantastic model to reference for people. Yeah, definitely. It's, 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 it's inspirational and aspirational. So um, the last few minutes we got here, I want to ask you about, um, I think one of the biggest changes in sport climbing is the lower off anchors. And um, for me, everything changed. Like, I feel like there was a, quite a gray area in there where there's the ethic of preserving the anchor that's up there. So you tie in, you put your own gear, you never top rope off what's up there. 
and that has completely shifted now. Um, so I want to talk about that initiative from ASCA's perspective. And then, you know, talking about nuance, um, I think there's a couple nuance points that we could both offer our takes on and, and maybe kind of educate someone who is unsure when they come to two bomber, um, you know, climb tech moosey hooks, if you can just clip them and go or not, you know. Um, but I, I like to hear because I know that's on your social media, that's something you're really highlighting right now is is your lower off campaign and, and how many you've been able to hang at these popular areas like 10 sleep rifle. Um, the list goes on and on. Yeah, that that's something that's really taken off over the last few years. And really, the lower off initiative is it, its primary focus is not convenience, even though it is very convenient to have a lip clip and lower style anchor. Um, the primary focus is is reducing accidents. So many of our accidents, uh, one of the most common scenarios for serious injury and, and fatality at single pitch climbing areas is belayer miscommunication at the anchor. And that means people, you know, miscommunicate or rather whether they're lowering or repelling, um, you know, open the system and don't close it again properly, you know, that type of thing. And a lot of those issues are solved with the clip and lower style anchor. Again, there's nuance to this, and it doesn't work everywhere. You know, pitch length is certainly something to think about. Uh, what You know, is this a multi-pitch route? Is there climbing above it? Things like this. But from a basic standpoint of a cragging area where most of the pitches are 30 meters or less, it, it really makes a ton of sense. And you definitely see a reduction of incidents. You see better traffic flow. Um, so if there's a clip and lower style anchor there, and it, we call these anchor hooks. Some people call them mussy hooks, but it's the ClimbTech anchor hook is the one we prefer. Um, it's specifically designed for climbing with the stainless steel wire gate. The gates hold up much better than the previous mussy hooks that have been been used. Folks have been using those for many years around the country, uh, but you know we really took off with this uh, pretty aggressively in the last few years because we've just. Old, I just want to interject with the old school ones could be terrifying they were like figuring out the system because when they were like the hardware store ones with the terrible gates you'd come up to some of them where the gates you could like they're like stay open and then the the moosey gets uh the hardware gets worn and, and sharp but these these climb tech ones just seem to be just i mean we've we've had some at, you know the golf wall we have i think moosey hooks on every Every route is golf walls like our our local beloved limestone choss pile. Like after works, have you been there before? I haven't been there, but okay. I'm familiar. You've heard with about it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's it's like a it's a it's a cool little place. But um, we've had we haven't had a single one wear out, and they've been on there for six or seven years. Yeah, for the high and, traffic stuff, it's a really good long term yeah. solution. And we actually supply um, different types of clip and lower anchors for different situations. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there is. Uh, just such a variety in American climbing. For instance, on sea cliffs, even stainless steel is not appropriate. Right. And, and we actually yeah. supply titanium, titanium glue-in anchors and titanium ram's horn mm-hmm. um, lower offs. Yep. But, you know, people were experimenting even many years ago with types of lower offs. Often yep. open cold shots were really popular. <laughs> yeah. and, and those have worked fine to a degree, but, you know, when, when you have something that's completely open like that, yeah. there is a certain risk. And especially if your rope is... You have someone top roping and you have a really pigtailed rope. It can actually pop right out of an open system like Mm -hmm. that. Um, So I think this standardizing this type of equipment in Mm -hmm. single pitch climbing areas Mm -hmm. is really, really valuable, especially as the climbing community grows and more people are out uh, making this transition from jib to crag. You know, it's I agree. And um, 
just another little nuanced point there is I see so much confusion, um, especially in Potrero. Uh, and granted, Potrero has the complexity of single pitch and multi-pitch. But um, I see a lot of confusion, or even in Durango, um, people will do these complex top rope anchors on these roots with bomber moosey hooks. And it's like, I just tell everyone, it's like, you can clip those. Like those are never those are, we're gonna wear out before those things do and but I also also often see these complex webbing setups and it's like I think people think they're helping the resource but it's like if those are sitting there and and it's it's good to go like you can put your own hardware on there if you want but if it's totally fine to just clip two bomber moosey hook anchors and just top rope off them or lower off them you know. Yeah, and this is a place where there is some nuance, too, um, yeah. because different communities will encourage different things. Sure. Generally, if you're going to lead the route and just lower off and clean your gear, clip it and, and lower for sure. If you're going to top rope a large party, I usually do encourage folks to, you know, hang a couple draws on there and just save the wear of the half dozen people that are going to run a lap. Mm-hmm. Um, Especially if you're in really high traffic areas, right? Yeah, yeah. Or, or if you have places with sandy soil, like if you ever right. climbed in the Owens River Gorge, you'll notice hardware uh. really wears out quickly because you get this grit on the ropes that Uh. really augers in so our general guideline for folks is if you're going to top rope folks you know hang a couple draws you have one of them can be a locker draw if you want Mm -hmm. and then just have last person just bump up and clip the other ones and grab the gear it's not too difficult to do um but really again we should defer to kind of our our local style yeah that's a good um and but there is a reason we're using this stuff that's really long lasting Mm -hmm. and you know has this really thick stock of steel Mm -hmm. uh it's because we know that things are going to see some significant traffic on them over the years and we want something that's really going to hold up to that abuse well that that is definitely i think just provided uh just made sport you know sport climbing that much more efficient and and enjoyable you know just having those those bomber hooks to just clip into totally agree and i don't think it's something that should be controversial um in single pitch primarily single pitch areas just pay attention to your rope lengths and the number one thing here you know the the other main place where people get hurt or people get killed is not closing their system you know you shouldn't be putting a knot in the end of your rope just when you happen to notice that maybe the pitch is too long you should just always have a knot in the end and then that way if you find yourself in a scenario you know it's people are going to lower regardless whether or not there's clipping lowers and the same goes with knotting your ropes to repel mm-hmm. but close your system pay attention either your blair should be tied in another end or there should be a, a knot in the system even if you're out cragging at the wild iris you know if you have that habit it's always there and um, that one will come back and bite you sport climbing if if you don't pay attention to it you know it's, it's too often and yeah. too sad to, to see it happening all the time and one thing I actually noticed in Potrero that a little critique for us, you know, hardware installers is that um, there's, you know, and I'm sure it's in so many areas where there's these crazy rope stretchers where you got to like, you know, go 10 feet up the rope and the belayer's got to tie a knot in the end. There's a couple of routes like that in Potrero. And I'm just like, those routes that you, you need an 80 meter for in, in a place that, that's not the standard, maybe you, there should be a lower anchor with Moosey's and not that... 80 meter you know like you need every bit of an 80 meter to do the route because in general most people are going down there with a 70 you know yes absolutely and and what we do is um when we provide these clip and lower style anchors we make sure that folks that are hanging them are thinking about what's considered a standard pitch length you know so if a 70 meter is is a standard rope that you need to bring to an area it's acceptable to put a clip and lower on a pitch that needs a 70 to get off but if it's needs an 80 to get off 
we should at least provide people another opportunity to stop and think, Mm -hmm. you know, whether it's seeing if their ends are down and they're repelling or they're like, Oh, I'm going to hang my gear. What am I going to do to top rope someone, whatever it is, it doesn't obviously prevent people from having that accident, but it's just something that's not nearly common enough for people to close their system. You know, it's just, you can't hammer that one enough. Um, I've spent a lot of time at the city of rocks, which is a place I love dearly. And, Mm -hmm. One thing that's really unique and special about the city is it has great variety. You know, you can do a, a run-out horror show that was done ground up with two bolts in 90 feet or something and no gear, mm-hmm. um, right next to a, a line that'll eat up gear, mm-hmm. right next to a nice mixed route, right next to a very well-bolted sport route. Mm-hmm. You know, and we have a bunch of variety in, in pitch lengths. And mm-hmm. sadly, we see deaths there fairly commonly from people um, lowering off something that's just too long for the rope because there's so much variety. You have pitches you can get off with a 50 and you have pitches that you need an 80 to get off of. So we really need to pay attention to that as climbers. And that's where you're exposing yourself when you're single pitch climbing. Mm -hmm. It's really probably not the stuff where you're scared, where you think you're going to take the scary winger. Mm -hmm. It's actually in these mundane things we do all the time, like rappelling, like belay transitions, like lowering, have a good plan, communicate well with your belayer. It's very important. Definitely. Well, thanks for giving us uh, this insight into Aska and in the world of bolts. I know you're you kind of have an encyclopedic mind for this stuff, and um, thanks for this this uh, taking the time during the Climbers Festival to um, to just yeah show us how this this world works, and um, we're we're very grateful for all the work that you all do. Yeah, we can. I mean, there's so much to get into with this stuff. We could rabbit hole forever, so we should we should do it again and and follow up at some point. Um, yeah, I think it would be great to chat about it again. And I'll, I'll give a shout out to say, um, you know, if you spend time climbing around Lander, um, please support our work, make a donation to the CWCA or come join us at the festival. And, um, you know, if you, if you like clipping the lower offs, you like seeing good hardware around the country, um, being replaced, the old bolts being replaced, safeclimbing.org is the ASCA website. We're a 501c3 nonprofit and, uh, to tax deductible donations, of course. So we appreciate any support you can send our way. And a huge shout out to all the volunteers actually getting the work done across the country. I get asked that question 50 times a year. Like, how do I support what you're doing? And I always tell them, go donate to Aska. So if, you, uh, if you're if you listening and you saw me at the crag and asked me that, get online and, and go make a donation to Aska. Uh, thanks, brother. Cheers, man. Thanks for having me. Uh. That was our fifth episode for season five. Super fun to sit down with Nate, and uh, this guy can just talk about this stuff forever. He's got a lot of passion for it, and I really enjoyed getting to know Nate a little bit more through this episode. Music from this episode is by Devin Dabney. Our digital editor and producer is Chad Rich. And signing off from Lander, Wyoming, I'm Luke Mihaw. Peace. Peace.